So welcome to the latest episode. I've lost track of uh, what number we're on now. Uh, this is episode 15 of The Torch of Progress. The Torch of Progress is our uh, speaker series associated with our online learning program, Progress Studies for Young Scholars. Uh, Progress Studies for Young Scholars was launched uh, this summer as a summer program in the history of technology um, and uh, the, the, the history of, of industrial and technological progress. It is now being run uh, uh, this fall and um, in on an ongoing basis as um, I believe both an after-school program and as part of the um, online or virtual learning program of the Academy of Thought and Industry. Uh, I'm your host, Jason Crawford. Uh, I write a website called The Roots of Progress at rootsofprogress.org where I cover the history of technology and the philosophy of progress. Um, and I also designed and created Progress Studies for Young Scholars. Uh, our guest today is uh, uh, very special and highly relevant to this because he is the founder of the, the Academy of Thought and Industry High School, uh, which is now hosting this program. So um, he's done a, a lot of different things. Uh, uh, he's actually founded a number of, of different schools. Academy of Thought and Industry is only one of the most recent. Um, he has written a couple of books, including The Habit of Thought and uh, Be the Solution. And he's the co-founder of a nonprofit, Freedom Lights Our World, or Flow, uh, along with John Mackey, who is the founder and CEO of Whole Foods. Um, and together they created something called uh, Conscious Capitalism. So um, Michael, uh, we're not gonna have time to even cover your career today, but hopefully we can dip into uh, a few of, of maybe some of the you know, highlights um, of, your, of your thinking. Um, Michael, welcome to the program and everybody please welcome Michael Strong. Thank you, thank you. And by the way, um, hi, Tammy. Uh, Tammy Dunn is actually the principal of Moreno Valley High School, a charter high school I founded in Northern New Mexico. So um, we've sort of got a, a family a gathering here, so to speak. Um, but great to be here, Jason. I'm very enthusiastic about uh, progress studies in general and your work in particular. So I'm delighted to be joining you. Thanks. Um, all right, let's just start with the Academy of Thought and Industry, since it's so relevant. Love that name, by the way. It's a great name for a school. Um, but let's just sort of go back to the beginning of it. You know, what is ATI and, you know, what, why did you found it? What, what motivated you to do it? So I'm a very, uh, very passionate about learning and, you know, higher ground education, the parent company of the Academy of Thought and Industry, is the leading Montessori organization in the United States. They're the largest and fastest growing. It's hard to keep track of how many schools, but something like 60 schools now. And I'm a great believer in Montessori education because of its emphasis on agency and independence. I, I think that it's really important for young people to have agency. So the opportunity to create a high school model in association with Montessori network was extraordinary. And with the Academy of Thought and Industry, um, you know, Matt Bateman, whom you know well, um, really, I think he came up with the actual title, but thinking and doing. I'm a great believer in thinking and doing. You know, in my two books, The Habit of Thought, all about thinking, and Be the Solution, all about doing. And so if we can help young people become great thinkers and doers, um, they're ready to tackle the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, great. So, so ATI is really a Montessori-inspired high school then. Um, for people who, you know, know a bit about Montessori, they might know that it's mostly, most of the material and the techniques that were developed kind of aimed at younger children. If anybody's ever visited a Montessori school, they probably, you know, it might've been a kindergarten, they've probably seen young children 
uh, spread around the room on their mats doing activities and um, and very uh, you know and often often very simple things. So how do we extend the Montessori philosophy to the high school level? So I see there are a couple of things that are key to Montessori thought. First, um, I think Maria Montessori is an underrecognized genius that. Uh, I still don't understand why we don't have a full-length feature, feature-length film about Montessori's life. Um, she was kind of an amazing character in many ways, uh, definitely a pathbreaker, uh, really dedicated to her work. But many people think Montessori, they think preschool. I think the greatest insight that Maria Montessori had about education was that it should be thought of as a prepared environment or curated environment within which freedom is possible. Uh, constructive freedom of the child is possible. I think there's been an endless uh, back and forth in education between um, sort of top-down models versus giving the child more agency. And then sometimes without structure, freedom is unconstructive. And I think the mainstream hasn't really come to grips with the notion that if you design an environment in the right way, freedom can be really productive. So if you look at a Montessori classroom, and now I'm thinking at a younger age, um, well, first, everybody should visit one just to see these five-year-old kids walking around doing their own thing, but being uh, constructive, focused, engaged in their work, absolutely astonishing. I and mean, for people who haven't seen one, you've got to look at it. But it's not magic. That is, Montessori observed children for a long time, and she saw that when children have the right work in front of them in the right way, then they spontaneously engage in productive activity. And so the whole task of education becomes focused on how do you create an environment in which children are naturally productive. And at the adolescent level, one of her key insights is they need to feel valorized or that's kind of a fancy word she uses. They need to feel as if what they're doing is valuable. And going back to traditional cultures, I'm very impressed with um, indigenous cultures. In traditional cultures, they didn't have schools. Um, you know, young people learned the role of being an adult in indigenous traditional societies by means of practicing first by play, but then gradually taking on more substantial adult roles in the community. And as a consequence, you didn't have the kind of artificial nature of school. I think one of the challenges in our world is how do we replicate that in adolescence? Because, um, you know, it, it, it's our, our work is not going and hunting a deer. You know, our work is very different and very diverse. Uh, one of Montessori's original model actually was a farm school where kids would not only farm, but uh, run businesses. And so they would run a bed and breakfast and maybe, you know, prepare food and things like that. And that was a nice model. And there are a few Montessori adolescent programs that do that, Erdkinder after the German Earth Child, but that's not very realistic in an urban environment. And so a lot of what we have to do is figure out how do we give uh, adolescents valuable work and one approach I've taken is, I'll call it, talk about new collar job creation. You know, people in the new collar economy, which is a fancy word for coding, UX, UI design, digital marketing, video production, all these jobs where you know, Silicon Valley, Seattle, New York, Austin, they can't get enough employees. You know, there are 100,000, $150,000 jobs that are going unfilled because there's endless demand. My son works for Amazon as a data scientist, and he says they cannot hire, they cannot find people to hire. Um, these are often very, sometimes even more highly paid jobs. 
Um, and so how do we create a pipeline of talent? And one of the things, uh, a lot of schools do project-based learning. For me, uh, the project is not only a project given by teachers, but a project where the student is actually doing real world work as quickly as possible. And this may start with teacher assigned projects and very often in courses it can be. But for instance, I've had students um, you know, actually create a website for an American Idol finalist and imagine that you know, you're a 14 year old and an American Idol celebrity is using the website you created for them. Uh, I had a student who created marketing videos for Kaiser Permanente that are actually used by Kaiser Permanente. You know, and so there are all sorts of ways in which young people can have, I would say, adult level uh, digital sophistication. And in terms of the pride and the validation and the effort, it's tremendous. So I'm not saying it's always easy in every situation, but the more we can move towards real world work for teenagers, um, it makes, it gives all of their other academic work more meaning and it gives them tremendous purpose and motivation. So that's kind of a, a quick uh, vignette, uh, but I can go on and on. I'll pause there though. Yeah, that's great. Um, so uh, I'm a, a big believer in the value of work and I think project-based learning is great. How do you balance or integrate that with um, the, uh, the more abstract subjects? I mean, are the students still learning history and mathematics and science? Are they studying literature, you know, those, uh, along with these sort of more project-based or vocational things? Well, absolutely. And, and part of this is um, abstract learning becomes relevant when it's applied to the real world. Um, there's a book on great college professors. And part of what it finds is that even though different, and these are college professors who are legendary at their universities for decades, and they have very different styles common threads these researchers discovered after discovering, after you know, looking at say these 40 or 50 great research, great professors was that they were all very good at taking abstract and tying it to concrete. That you know, a biochemist could show how this very abstract biochemistry related directly to real world problems. And so it was neither stuck at the practical nor was it stuck at the abstract continually going back and forth, showing the relevance. Um, you know, for somebody, I love learning, and for somebody who loves learning, it's not that, you know, I learn abstraction for the sake of abstraction. I see learning abstraction as a way to understand the world more effectively, as a way to be more effective in the world. Um, and so in a certain sense, it may sound odd, but it's not about uh, abstraction at all. It's about how do I understand the world? You know, to take something that's of deep interest to me, one of the reasons I studied economics and political science is why are these institutions we could say today so messed up or what works and what doesn't or how, how are these things actually functioning? Because I think ultimately, if you wanna function in the world, you need to understand how it works. Um, I'll give you a very different case. I had a, a student who became a world-class coder and it was only after trying to solve hard problems that he realized he needed to learn more about algorithms. He was mostly self-taught, but at some re point he realized, wow, uh, to solve certain kinds of problems, I need to learn about mathematical algorithms, which is as abstract and can become as abstract a subject as you please. So I, I would say um, the effort is to use the concrete and practical to motivate a deeper appreciation of the broad abstract sorts of subjects um, so that they care about understanding the world and being effective in the world over the course of um, hopefully long and productive life. 
it sounds like there would be a very different role perhaps for the teacher in that kind of environment. I'm not even sure if you call them teachers. What, say a little bit more about that role and, how, and their relationship to the student. Very much so. So um, guide is the term used in Montessori schools and we also call them guides. And the idea is the role is to guide a student to learn, to achieve, to get things done. Um, and as much as possible, Marie Montessori, one of my favorite quotations is that um, the sign of a teacher's success is that the, teach the students are working as if I'm not even there. And that applies uh, certainly in a Montessori primary classroom that when a Montessori classroom is working really well, you know, I, I've gone into Montessori classrooms and you don't even know where the teacher is. Sometimes she may be working as a student in a corner over there. The students are all working as if she or he is not there. Um, you know, one of my greatest sources of uh, pride in the uh, Socratic at ATI was that at one point um, when we went virtual, uh, the guide in a class, and this is not one that I was directly involved in, but I heard about it secondhand, the guide had internet trouble and dropped off the call and the students just continued credit discussion, um, you know, without the guide, of course, they just are responsible for the class. Let's keep going. And so um, I would say for me, the sign of success is when the adult is no longer necessary in the classroom. Yeah. Uh, and that's a great story of, of independence, which is a thing that I know Montessori aims at creating and, and you aim at creating in ATI. Um, since you mentioned uh, the Socratic discussion, that would, that's a great segue to another topic I was interested in, in talking to you about. This is, I know, a passion of yours, the Socratic method. You wrote a whole book on it. Um, you know, most people probably know the Socratic method is just like, oh, that's when the teacher asks questions. I bet there's mm -hmm. more to it than that, especially given that you wrote a whole book. So. Uh, what is there to the Socratic method beyond just the teacher asks questions? Terrific, thank you. And I wanna connect this directly to progress studies, which may not be obvious, um, but one of the best books I've read in the last year or two is a book by um, Joseph, Joseph Henrik, a, an anthropologist called The Secret of Our Success. And he talks about culture and how humanity's ability to transmit culture is what allowed us to thrive in, you know, Arctic climates, climates with the Eskimos in Alaska or very harsh dry climates with the Aborigines in Australia, um, you know, all sorts of diverse jungle climates in South America and Africa, that passing on culture from generation to generation to generation is really how we've survived in an extraordinary range of, uh, you know, different environments. The connection that I make between that and Socratic, which may not be obvious, is of course, Socrates was famously put to death by the Greeks for corrupting the young and not believing in the gods of the state. And um, you know, many intellectuals uh, think that he was unfairly put to death by the Greeks, but the more sympathetic interpretation is that it's human nature to want to conserve culture. And in fact, we have succeeded in over hundreds of thousands of years in different environments because our nature in that sense is radically conservative. Um, we believe what our grandfathers and great-grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers believed. There's some evidence that um, some of our fairy tales are based on myths that may be 30,000 years old. So I think um, there are actual survival reasons for deep conservatism in human nature. That said, Socrates, and this is the connection to progress studies, Socrates began asking 
what is truth, what is justice, um, what is beauty, what is honor, and asking people, expecting people to have rational justifications for their beliefs, which again may sound trivial, but it's actually a very radical move. If I ask a respected leader in the community what justice is, and this is what Socrates did, and the leader in the community can't give a coherent answer. Maybe he says, justice is doing right by my friends or justice is um, ruling over the weak. You know, and these are answers from Socratic dialogues. And then Socrates pulls out inconsistencies um, in those definitions. Ultimately, Socrates embarrassed these powerful figures in the community. The young people in uh, Periclean Athens copied Socrates and went around asking these embarrassing questions to people in authority. And the deep conservatism of traditional culture, including the notion that the elder members ought to be respected by the younger members, um, was thereby broken. And so of course they had to put Socrates to death. That said, that um, social practice, if you will, that meme, if you will, of expecting each other to have rational justifications for our ideas, uh, I would say is a deeply radical uh, social phenomenon that ultimately resulted in the extraordinary progress of math, science, human rights, um, you know, social and cultural evolution that took place uh, in many cases in European history. Um, so the path from putting Socrates to death because he's asking these questions to um, you know, the scientific enlightenment for something is a long and tortuous one. But I think it's, for me personally, it's radical and fascinating to, in teen culture and adolescent culture, to develop the mutual expectation that we have um, rationally consistent and coherent understandings of uh, the ideas we have. So a lot packed into there, I'm not sure where you wanna go from there, but I'll pause and see if any particular strand is of more interest than another. Yeah, oh, I have a few places I want to go. So one is, I mean, so, so again, to connect this to, to progress studies, you know, one of the themes that I think comes out of studying the history of progress, invention, and so forth is, um, you know, how much of it needed to challenge tradition and authority uh, in order to, you know, come up with something new. Um, and this was especially the case, I would say, around the birth of the um, or, uh, of science, around the scientific revolution, the beginning of the Enlightenment, and um, so do you see a value in this sort of conservatism of respecting old ideas? And if so, how do we, uh, you know, how do we make that not a barrier to progress? No, that's a huge, great question. Um, and so kind of where I've come to is um, I want to, I, I think Socratic rationality is absolutely essential to progress and the freedom of thought and freedom of discussion around it, absolutely essential to progress. Um, so in some ways it's sacred to me and we must not let it die. Um, you know, when I see say the Chinese surveillance state and the way the Chinese government, the CCP is cracking down on freedom of thought, absolutely chilling. And the notion that that could happen in the West is absolutely chilling. At the same time, I don't feel as if any we, um, you or I or any particular set of people should impose our standards of what to question, not to question um, you know, in particular communities. And so I would say, as long as there's space in the public arena for absolutely um, unrestricted discussion of thought, uh, then if particular, say, communities are not relevant, ready for that, 
and just one that people have a positive image of, you know, the Amish are very traditional and very conservative and they seem to, you know, have a relatively, you know, healthy, successful culture. If the Amish want to be Amish, I'm not going to come in and say, uh, we need to question everything Amish, you know, it's working for them. And, and I think different people, you know, have different sort of uh, ways in which they, they need to kind of protect things that they've, uh, ways they've been doing things for, you know, centuries perhaps. Um, while, so I think we have to have a balance between maybe allowing uh, local groups uh, to have whatever conservatism they need while allowing a public sphere that is absolutely unbounded with respect to exploring ideas. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, let, so this is great. Let me, um, let me also, the other, one of the other forks I wanted to take, um, we've been touching on a lot of things uh, related to a concept that you wrote an essay about on, on Medium, uh, the concept of Western civilization. Mm -hmm. um, I think people use that term in somewhat different ways, um, especially in recent years. So what does the term Western civilization mean to you? And what, you know, how, why is it important or relevant today? No, that's a great question. So it's on the intellectual and moral value of Western civilization. And for me, the Socratic meme of a mutual expectation that we have consistent and coherent um, you know, rationally consistent and coherent understandings is the core. And part of this is um, if you look at, you know, there was the um, Periclean Athens, which had this extraordinary um, explosion of originality, you know, uh, Greek drama, philosophy, democracy in a certain sense, uh, logic, you know, all sorts of science, all sorts of things had an early prototype in Periclean Athens. And then gradually, um, you know, in Rome, I think there's a legitimate case for thinking of Rome as kind of copying the Greeks rather than expanding on them. There was sort of an 800 year period from 500 um, BC roughly to 380, where there was to some extent this culture of rational discussion um, with Archimedes as a high point. You know, Archimedes uh, really created science in a certain sense. And um, then we have what I, there are criticisms about calling it the dark ages, but you know, in Europe at least, things did kind of uh, become less intellectual and intellectual energy actually moved to the Byzantine world and the Muslim world. And so from you know, the fall of Rome until the Renaissance, most of the intellectual energy um, you know, outside of say China was broadly construed Byzantine, Islam, and then also Hindu. You know, at this point, the Silk Roads are starting to happen. And so there is kind of developing a common culture of intellectuality from the Mediterranean kind of to the Himalayas. And this becomes very vibrant. Um, there's actually an article I'm interested in uh, that claims there is no West and talks about uh, kind of the center of culture going from the Mediterranean to kind of the Silk Roads and then it becomes of interest vis-a-vis -vis Europe again with the fall of Constantinople and then the rediscovery of the Platonic texts in Greek in Renaissance, what became Renaissance Italy. So um, at, in Italy, they kind of lost Plato. They still had Aristotle. So the medieval scholastic, scholastics still had Aristotle. And I have a tremendous respect for Aristotle's logic, but they had lost the kind of dialogue that Plato is characteristic characterizes in you know, Socrates asking questions. So in that, there's a lot of evidence that the revival, the rediscovery of Plato in the West 
in Plato had never been forgotten in Byzantine and Islam uh, worlds. I don't know about the Hindu world, but the rediscovery of Plato in the West then was part of the Renaissance, which is rightly known, it's rightly renowned. The level, in many ways, Renaissance is the beginning, not of just a beautiful art and architecture, but of science. I mean, I think Galileo is rightly renowned. You know, in some ways, Archimedes is the first uh, scientist, but in other ways, Galileo is the first really, really real scientist. Um, and by the way, Galileo had the highest respect for Archimedes. I think, you know, I forget exactly his language, but for Galileo, Archimedes was sort of person number one. Um, so then you get Galileo creating Western science and as it were, the rest is history. Uh, and I think, you know, people talk about diverse sorts of sciences around the world, but it's not an accident that due to this expectation of mutual rationality that was a meme in Socrates exploded in the Renaissance and ultimately led to the rise of Western science. Um, I think we can't underestimate the impact of that. And by the way, um, Galileo wrote several of his books as dialogues. And so they're dialogues where people are arguing. And part of that is he didn't want to be known as, for being as radical as he was. But also, I think he wanted the logic of, of the positions he was advocating for to be argued in dialogue so people could see that they were logically compelling arguments. Um, before pausing one more time, I've briefly talked about Western science. But the other thing is um, a tradition of you know, arguing for rights and government. So, you know, in uh, Periclean Athens, not just Athens and Sparta, but there were many different kinds of government. And part of what you see in early Greece is, are arguments about the best form of government. It's obviously Sparta and Athens having different forms, but there were many different models. There were arguments about constitutions. What was the best constitution? These were rational arguments about the structure of law, government, and constitutions. This becomes revived in Renaissance Italy with the different republics uh, in Italy. There were again, arguments about the structure of government, the structure of power, the structure of law. And those arguments I see as early prototypes of what ultimately became um, you know, constitutionality and the rule of law in the West, which led to human rights and prosperity. I'm you know, jumping over a million other relevant facts, but just wanted to kind of tie Socratic rationality to um, the explosion in Western science and mathematics and its success, as well as government, human rights, and the rule of law as two just incredibly important legacies. Yeah. Um, interesting that you pick out Archimedes uh, to have such prominent importance. Uh, now, I'm a fan of Archimedes, but why do you and, and Galileo, uh, you know, see him as the singular figure? No, that's a great question. So first, I'm also a big fan of Euclid. Um, and, but Euclid is very you know, rational. He creates this incredible geometric system based on a few um, premises or axioms. Uh, so, and Archimedes was modeling to some extent his work uh, on that of Euclid. But um, there is a legitimate criticism of Greek thought that it was overly speculative and not adequately tied to empirical reality. And, Totally agree, that was a legitimate weakness of Greek thought. Archimedes tied the rationality of the Greek tradition with real empirical investigations. And I think, you know, in some ways that's what Galileo did that you know, knocked it out of the ballpark is when you combine a commitment to rational coherence with empirical evidence, 
that's when you get Western science. So in some ways, Archimedes was the first Western scientist, um, you know, 100, 1,000 years before Galileo, something like that. And then Galileo kind of picked that up and in some ways formalized it in his work. Uh, and then we're off like a rocket um, to the moon and Mars and beyond, so to speak. Literally. Um, yep. Yeah, uh, interesting. So one of my, uh, one of my favorite uh, ancient Greek scientists, probably maybe not the greatest, but I would say definitely the most underrated in terms of how well he's known is Aristarchus. Uh, so Aristarchus mm -hmm. actually um, attempted to measure the relative size of the sun, uh, moon, and earth, and was the, therefore the first person to realize that the sun was actually larger than the entire earth. Um, uh, and through this, uh, on, on, in part on this basis, was I believe the first person to propose a heliocentric theory of the solar system. Um, not, uh, you know, so, so thousands of years ahead of his time, uh, unlike the Greek atomists who were who who proposed a physical theory far ahead of their time, but on pure philosophical speculation, Aristarchus proposed a theory ahead of his time based on actually you know based on empirical observations. Um, no, but Archimedes was also so, pretty pretty up there. Absolutely. Just an interesting aside. Um, I believe the book is called uh, "The Geography of Science" by I think uh, Dorn. I believe is his last name forget his first name, but fascinating book. He makes the case that all, while science and math originated around the world, in every place except the Greek Mediterranean, it came about uh, as a practical, he calls it a hydraulic thing. And what he means by that is um, the math and science of ancient Egypt, of ancient China, of ancient Hindu kingdoms, of the Mayas, was all based in some ways on irrigation. You know, with Egypt, when is the Nile gonna flood? <laughs> Um, how much is it going to flood? You know, and, and so even their interest, say, in astronomy was driven by keeping track of the time of the year for the floods. The Greek islands, by contrast, developed this purely speculative science for its own sake, math for its own sake, philosophy for its own sake, kind of disconnected, untethered for, from uh, the hydraulic kingdoms. And this author makes the case that that um, lack of practical connection. Basically, if you're an Egyptian scientist or a Chinese scientist, uh, you've got to please the emperor by predicting, uh, you know, when, when the floods are going to come next spring. Whereas in the Greek islands, there were no top-down authority. You had all of these kind of crazy philosophers going from island to island, city to city, arguing stuff that had no practical relationship. But, it, you know, going back to Aristarchus, it doesn't improve our prediction of the flood to speculate that the earth goes around the sun, but that's the root of modern science is when you begin um, going for truth for truth's sake, rather than let's, let's make sure we get the flood right so the king doesn't kill us next year. Yeah, the, uh, the anthropologist, I believe it is uh, C.R. Hallpike, uh, pointed out that many ancient civilizations tracked the stars and, and came up with these predictions and these mathematical models of the seasons and so forth. The Greeks were the only ones who thought to make a geometric model to actually think about the shape of the of the solar system and and the heavens and uh, to think about circles and epicycles and and so forth. Nobody had done that before. Yeah, and again, I think that's that speculative interest. Uh, what is what is the truth? What what is out there? Yeah. Um, back to the term, the, the concept of uh, and and specifically the term, you know, Western Civ. Uh, I read an interesting essay recently by uh, Rob Trasinski, who was suggesting that uh, it, maybe it's time to retire the term Western civilization 
And he suggested replacing it with something like enlightenment civilization. And his argument was uh, Western civilization isn't just in the West anymore. It's we've, we've globalized. Uh, the ideas have spread all over the world. Uh, many of them are being, you know, practiced in, you know, I mean, capitalism is in Hong Kong and Singapore and, you know, all over the world. Um, he also pointed out the West doesn't necessarily remember or live up to all the ideas of Western civilization so much anymore. And so it's not nearly as Western, um, you know, literally speaking Western uh, as it used to be. Um, I don't know, what do you think about those, those terms? No, I, I think that, that's a great argument. And going back, there's a wonderful book called um, The Silk Roads, which really is, I, I think in my, um, you know, Western education, I did not get an adequate education about what really happened from the fall of Rome to the rise to the Renaissance. And it really, this book does a great job of showing how what we think of, we including those of us who talk about Western civilization, what we think about Western civilization really was developed by the Byzantine, Muslim and Hindu cultures for um, you know, almost a thousand years while the West was in the dark ages. You know, China is interesting because um, it definitely had its own civilization and it doesn't appear as if there was as much cross-pollination with um, Byzantine, Islam, and Hindu. But the other piece of that is, uh, you know, talk about Africa. Timbuktu is one of the oldest universities uh, and, you know, Islamic. And, you know, obviously Egypt has been a center of civilization for a long time. And so I do think the language of Western civilization is misleading. Um, David Graeber is the one who wrote the essay, There Is No West. And he, the reason he argues for that is that, um, you know, the worlds of Greece and Rome are so very different from post-Renaissance Europe that it's misleading to talk of too much continuity. Although he does acknowledge the one piece of continuity there is, is this tradition of rational discussion. So there's a sense in which you know, Machiavelli is arguing with Roman authors. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> just, um, just a little but, thing called, called reason. Yeah. To totally, totally agree with that. <laughs> that said, I think the enlightenment is the important part. And again, going global, um, I think I, I'm, I love Pinker's uh, enlightenment now. I think we need to defend enlightenment values because that's given us almost everything we've got today. And if we don't continue to defend enlightenment values, um, we could go into dark ages that are far more miserable than, than we can imagine. Yeah. Um, all right, we will take, start taking questions from the audience in a few minutes. So uh, folks, um, for those of you who are in one of our programs and you're in the uh, Slack, go ahead and find the thread for questions that I posted in the Slack and the announcements channel. Um, and we'll try to prioritize those. Um, uh, everyone else, uh, go ahead and just type your questions right into the Zoom chat. And I will, uh, you know, kind of uh, moderate and read them out. Um, while people are thinking about and, and typing up their questions, let's let's cover one more topic. So you created this concept with John Mackey of conscious capitalism. Uh, what is that concept, and can you explain the term? Uh, why you chose why you chose that term for it, and, and what it differentiates? You know, how, how it's differentiated from, I guess, other forms. Of sure. So I, I think in, again, going back, to, I'm very interested in evolutionary biology and especially the evolution of humanity. And in traditional cultures, um, and in, you know, I connect sort of traditional with indigenous cultures here, people have a sense of purpose in the community. It goes back to actually adolescence being valorized in a community that we all need 
to be part of a, of a community where we're engaged in something purposive. And I think that a lot of people who are known as uh, the creators of great enterprises, in fact, do have a purpose, but they're driven by something that is uh, sometimes it's an intellectual curiosity, sometimes it's to build something better, to invent something greater. And so if you think of the great entrepreneurs, very often they had a passion for something. Meanwhile, the, I would blame the Marxists. The Marxists have developed this narrative around capitalism that I think mistakenly claims that it's all about greed. When in fact, uh, while there are certainly people, human beings that are driven by greed in the Catholic church, it's one of the seven deadly sins. So greed exists, but I think it's a, a terrible mistake to identify this incredibly productive system with greed. And so I, I often talk about just free enterprise. I'm a great believer in free enterprise, but we chose the name conscious capitalism to deliberately, uh, as it were, tweak people's perceptions. That is, insofar as the Marxists had successfully branded capitalism as about greed when it is not, um, we're reconnecting it with, what if you're conscious of your purpose rather than driven by greed, then what does capitalism look like? And again, one of the things we've found is that most entrepreneurs are actually driven by some sense of purpose. And it does become a little bit trickier as you get into um, large amounts of capital and ultimately the public markets. There are a whole different set of issues around public capital markets um, and distortions of various sorts due to markets and all sorts of things. But uh, the basic idea was to reclaim capitalism as a purpose-driven enterprise. So short version, but I'll pause there. Yeah, it's interesting. So you, you contrast um, purpose and conscious, conscious purpose with greed. Um, let's just drill into that a little more. I mean, so what does it, what does it mean to be, uh, what, what does or would it mean to be driven by greed exactly? And how is that different from having a purpose? Is someone, is a, is a, a, a businessman who's driven by greed, is he not uh, being purposeful? Explain that a bit more. So, uh, you know, actually, you know, I would say a really interesting case study in this is, um, you know, Howard Rourke in The Fountainhead, I would say is incredibly purpose-driven. He has a deep commitment to his own ideals um, about what architecture should be and what counts as quality. And he is impervious to short-term, um, you know, incentives. I mean, he gets kicked out because he won't capitulate. He gets kicked out of his architecture school because he won't capitulate. Um, and so I think it's interesting, and I actually think it's a mistake on the part of um, Rand to emphasize greed when the heroes she creates, I would say, are extraordinarily purpose-driven. Um, and I, I read that mistake on her part as uh, because the communists were so dominant, the Marxists were so dominant, um, you know, I think she likes to be contrarian. So if they're saying it's bad, I'm going to stand up for greed. But in fact, her characters are not about greed. They, they have a purpose that transcends short-term incentives. Whereas, you know, you can imagine uh, a greedy Rourke, somebody saying, look, uh, we'll give you this position if you just build a crappy building and we'll pay you this much. No way Rourke's going to build a crappy building that he doesn't believe in for, you know, a little bit more money. And so I think that's where um, this image of people just being driven by profit, um, regardless of other consequences, is not consistent 
with um, a vision of integrity. Of course, a successful business should and needs to be profitable. The way John Mackey likes to talk about it is, you know, it's like blood. If we don't have oxygen in our blood, we'll die. Does that mean we're living for the sake of oxygen? Um, most of us would not say that's why we're living. No, we need oxygen and food to survive, but we have another purpose. So I'm very interested in human beings having ideals and integrity and in purpose. Um, and going back to you know, Galileo or Socrates, in many cases, those purpose and integrity are at great personal risk or cost. That is, you know, Socrates put to death, Galileo um, house imprisonment, uh, and they could have capitulated to the society and chose not to. So I think there's a huge tension between um, our ideals of purpose, integrity, vis-a-vis um, -vis kind of capitulating either to power or money. So I'm hearing some themes from you that I think that I feel pop up in a number of places. Uh, uh, let me let me phrase them back to you and look, you know tell me how this fits with what you're thinking about. Um, one is the is the notion of short-term incentives versus taking a longer-term view. Um, the other mm -hmm. is uh, sort of in a, in uh, a, a different dimension, maybe having a narrow uh, scope of what you're focusing on and optimizing for versus a broader uh, and more uh, more conceptual scope that sort of takes in more. So, so when I hear you say greed, what I understand that to be is very narrow. It's only focused on maybe sort of the numbers that we can see in the, in the income statement um, and very short term. So maybe I'm only even thinking about kind of like quarterly earnings, right? Whereas, and, and what that would be contrasted to would be something where I'm thinking decades out or generations out. And I'm thinking about, um, I'm not, it's not that I, I don't value money and profit, but I value many other things besides, and I want to integrate them into a bigger picture. Is that a, a good way of stating the contrast? That certainly is the case, you know, say for um, a conscious capitalist. I would also say that a lot of great scientists and artists and so forth have, if not zero, pretty close to zero interest in money. I think, you know, a lot of the, the great thinkers um, had a passion for what they're doing, and sometimes they lived in poverty or sometimes they lived very simple lives. Um, I'm sure we could come up with cases where they have the opportunity to have a great deal more money, but it was really about their particular search for the truth uh, as they saw it. Um, and it could also be kind of a creative truth. So um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very much uh, interested in the multiplicity of human nature. There are countless different people. You know, as philosophers, we could get into uh, what actually motivates people and what's actually good for humanity. Uh, but I think just looking at going back to progress studies, those agents, those human beings who've been key to progress, um, I don't think money has been a particularly uh, salient issue for a lot of the thinkers. I agree with that. Um, obviously, you know, money is important to everybody in their own life to a certain degree. You need it to live. Uh, but yeah, beyond that, I would say it's business that's that is much more strongly motivated by uh, by profit than than science or even really engineering and invention, which is very very often just driven by making cool things. Um, mm -hmm. Great, we've got a so question from the audience about um, Montessori and the growth of Montessori. This question is from Alec, um, and it's a two parter. So I'm gonna I'm gonna rephrase it a little bit. Uh, basically, it's it's what do you see as as the most fundamental obstacle? Uh, to the growth. Um, actually, okay, so there are two questions here. All right, let me just ask them one at a time. So one is, uh, do you see the growth of Montessori as more supply limited or demand limited? 
So I'll answer it a little bit more orthogonally, which is um, I've become very interested. Uh, Larry Cuban and David Tyak, some Stanford scholars, um, one of them is dead. I believe it's Tyak may be dead and Cuban's still alive. But at any rate, they, they came up with a concept of the grammar of schooling. And they see the grammar of schooling as restricting innovation. The grammar of schooling includes the notion that there is a fourth grade and that there is an English class and that there is an expectation of, you know, reports and test scores and Carnegie credits in high school, that there are all of these um, boxes. And I would say the, they are largely supported by, you know, government measures such that one can, and Montessori violates the grammar of schooling is the short answer. So, you know, to have a multi-age classroom, you can kind of do it in a public school, but you still have to report on fourth grade test scores and you can kind of let follow the child um, in a government Montessori school, but uh, at the same time, they have to cover, yeah, fifth grade history or whatever. And so uh, there's a way in which I think real Montessori fundamentally violates the grammar of schooling. And so I think that ultimately we need for, um, so going back to demand versus supply, one point I calculated the average Montessori teacher sacrifices about a million dollars in lifetime income relative to a public school teaching career. Most Montessori schools, uh, you know, this is much less the case with the higher ground system, but most Montessori schools are tiny. Um, they, the parents can barely afford the tuition. The uh, teachers are working for much lower wages. They have far fewer benefits. Um, they work longer hours, more days a year. Uh, and so compared to you know, what goes into uh, you know, the public system, most Montessori schools are starved. And when you think of this over the course of a um, you know, 100 years, it's been 100 years of Montessori, um, you know, at one point I, I looked at the kind of annual investment that goes into uh, public education versus Montessori, and it was at least two orders of magnitude greater. And so if you look at uh, the, the analogy I do is cars. So suppose, um, you know, one car company had two orders of magnitude more funding over the course of a century compared to you know, a different kind of car. Hello, huge difference. And so I think when you start to look at kind of the fundamental drivers, um, as long as we have government enforced grammar of schooling, uh, it, there is going to be a huge supply problem. But the supply problem is not just we're not training enough. It's that uh, most Montessorians, if they are trained, uh, will have to sacrifice a significant amount to stay within Montessori. Or if they go to public school, then gradually they kind of have to sacrifice some things that are sacred to them as Montessorians. So I think um, I'm excited about uh, you know, tax credits with fewer restrictions, uh, tuition tax credits, or maybe vouchers with fewer restrictions. I was optimistic about charter schools once upon a time, but then charter schools, especially under No Child Left Behind, um, had all of the grammar of schooling kind of enforced in spades. Um, and so the kind of debate I want around the school choice movement is not just Montessori, but all sorts of alternative movements need a lot more freedom. And specifically, they need to be freed from the grammar of schooling in order to flourish. Um, but I think at this point, the kind of discrepancy between what's important to human beings, especially young human beings on the one hand, and what, uh, you know, schooling is right now in mass, 
um, in government schools is becoming so great. I think we're getting to a tipping point where um, private alternatives and or private alternatives funded through tuition tax credits and vouchers may get to the point where we're ready to explode uh, with the Montessori Renaissance. So cautiously optimistic uh, based on kind of new funding models. Um, and I should mention just the mass prosperity. And in the US, uh, what people don't realize is a lot of the shrinking middle class is because a significant percentage of the middle class went to the upper middle class. So there are say 40% uh, of Americans who can afford private education now, especially if they don't have ridiculous housing prices. So we, we're at a place where you can, uh, even on a private uh, tuition based, you can have more of a Montessori mass movement than ever before. So quick answer to a very complex set of circumstances. Yeah, wow. Um, okay, so part two of this question is related. Uh, what do you see as the most fundamental obstacle uh, to confront for those interested in seeing much more rapid progress in education, whether that's Montessori or, you know, or, or in some other direction? No, great question. And I would say in addition to, um, you know, everything I just mentioned, I would also mention teacher training. Of course, one of the great ironies is that Montessori created dedicated teacher training programs, again, going on a century now, that she designed that are completely disconnected from um, university teacher training. You know, now there are finally a couple of Montessori training centers associated with universities. But when you think about Montessori's vision and impact, and that it's taken a hundred years to have a little bit of university respect, it's discouraging. Um, I know many people who have gone through education, gotten education degrees, and maybe Montessori got one mention in one line, you know, in a, in a you know, four-year undergraduate degree or a two-year master's degree. Um, and so I, I, and ultimately I think um, the training of teachers should be done by practitioners and not professors. Um, so I, I'm passionate about um, liberating uh, teacher training. You know, right now Montessori and Waldorf have their own dedicated teacher training programs, but I think every truly innovative educational model should have dedicated teacher training based on the pedagogical principles of the great practitioners in um, that field or that species of education, rather than forcing people to get four-year education degrees. I actually have a book coming out called The Missing Institution, where I describe this as a missing institution, where great practitioners are training the next generation of teachers. There is, um, you know, student-teacher student kind of classroom experience as part of an education degree, but it's an orphan. It doesn't get much attention or money. Um, and so student teaching is a tiny thing. Whereas in my missing institution vision, I don't know if you remember um, the stand and deliver, the great teacher, I'm forgetting his name, but he got all of these uh, you know, inner city LA kids passing AP calculus tests. And he should have been a teacher trainer. And instead the teacher unions basically kicked him out and he left and his program uh, disappeared. But you know, anytime we have an extraordinary teachers, Marva Collins, um, they should have the opportunity as did, uh, you know, I should say opportunity. Montessori through dint of courage and resilience and persistence created teacher training, but it should not be this hard. We should find a way so that um, teacher education is driven by great teachers of various sorts and not by, you know, professors. Professors, their expertise is doing maybe a regression or a literature review which is all fine and good. I'm not against research and education, but it's insane from my perspective to regard that as what's critical about teacher education. 
it's all about becoming a great practitioner. Yeah. Wow. Okay, great. Uh, well, we are just about, okay, we've got one uh, question that just came in. Can you, you have a few more minutes? We can take maybe one more. Sure, sure. Uh, great. So um, Jackson asks, if Montessori is in conflict with direct instruction, what do you make of research that suggests that direct instruction may actually be the most effective? Um, is, is what is being measured in these studies too limited in scope? So a couple of things, great question, by the way. For one, I think um, Montessori is a sophisticated pedagogy. It does require, I would say, artistry to do well. I think the reason direct instruction comes across so well in standard public school education is, um, you know, the system is a mess. And, you know, I've, I've seen, kind of backing up a little bit, so I spent decades training public school teachers uh, in Socratic through in-service trainings. And one of the difficulties was I would come in and get, you know, paid well to do one day, two day in-service training, maybe occasionally five day in-service trainings, but there's no guarantee that anything I did or anything I trained in would have any sort of quality control at all. And in fact, it's very easy for Socratic discussions to degenerate into you know, bull, bull sessions. Um, if you don't have a rigorous, rational thinker with a lot of training and experience, um, you know, it's just kind of not enough structure. And so I think the, what's effective about direct instruction um, is uh, it's kind of idiot proof. I mean, that's very explicitly. There's some versions of direct instruction that are scripted. And so, whereas any kind of sophisticated pedagogy needs much more rigorous quality control, including training, including evaluation, promotion, administration, supervision. Um, you know, in the corporate world, uh, I think it's Drucker said, culture uh, eats strategy for breakfast. And I think great Montessori schools, great private schools of all sorts, and even great public schools are where you have an incredible culture. But culture is extremely vulnerable um, you need the right people in the right places in the right way in order to have a robust culture. So I would say that um, simply in terms of implementation, um, I, I think it's very hard to implement anything at scale at a quality level unless you have a strictly private system. And even then, you know, most entrepreneurs fail. Most products in the marketplace are garbage. Uh, you know, we're going to have a lot of failure and we'll get some excellence. Going back to the too limited in scope, the other thing is for me as a learner, as an educator and as a parent, agency is immensely important. People who can, you know, I have a lot of friends in the startup world, uh, people on a startup team who take initiative, get things done are really valuable. What were their test scores? Nobody knows, nobody cares. Um, did you get it done? Uh, you know, are you an A player who gets shit done, to use the colloquial expression. And I see Montessori as supporting initiative over the entire course of an education, whereas I've met really bright students at the high school and college level who are pretty passive. And you know they enter the work world and it takes a couple of years to maybe flip around and say, hey, uh, we can't wait to tell you what to do all the time. Uh, you need to show a little bit of initiative. And sometimes they need to have you know, a mediocre job and be passive for a few years. So. There are other dimensions beyond say test scores and initiative, but I think initiative and the ability to get stuff done are really important. And those are not measured at all uh, you know, in, in test scores. So again, short version of a longer answer, but that's my short version. 
Okay, great. Um, well, I think this is a great place to draw a line. Thanks for a fascinating discussion, Michael. If people want to uh, learn more about you and your work, or uh, you know, follow uh, your thought writing, where where can they find you online? Uh, probably the best place. I'm I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook, but I'm very active on Facebook. Uh, and I would say a lot of, uh, not all, but a lot of my content is progress oriented. I'm absolutely fascinated with uh, innovation and progress broadly construed. So um, my wife is the Senegalese entrepreneur, Magat Wade, a beautiful African woman. There are multiple Michael Strongs, but only one Michael Strong, uh, whose wife is a beautiful a Senegalese entrepreneur. So follow me on Facebook, follow me on LinkedIn, and um, I'm less active on Twitter, but I, I love to be engaged with uh, everyone who's passionate about these issues. Okay, great. Um, and once again, I'm Jason Crawford. You can find my writing about uh, progress studies at rootsofprogress.org. Um, I'm also on Twitter as Jason Crawford. And if you want to learn more about progress studies for young scholars, go to progressstudies.school. Um, all, right. all right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Michael. And we Thanks, will see everyone. you all next yep. time. Bye-bye. Great day.